Good day, beautiful people. Please subscribe to our official YouTube channel, Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. You can see all of our videos and clips there. Tell your interested friends and family to do the same. And remember, you can't unthink free thought. Good morning, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. This is episode 58. And I'm in the presence of a very special guest. His name is Mr. Lorenzo Camboa Irving, and he is originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, currently resides there still, does a lot of local activism work. Uh, I found out about Mr. Irving because he published a book originally in 1979 entitled Anarchism and the Black Revolution. We're going to be talking about Anarchism and the Black Revolution, the definitive edition, which is actually a fourth edition published by Pluto Press. And um, he was also affiliated with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the Black Panther Party. Um, this is honestly, I was telling them off air, we could do an episode just on his backstory. But um, we will cover a lot about Mr. Irvin's backstory and into the book Anarchism and the Black Revolution, the fourth edition, the definitive edition. But I just want to say welcome to the show, and we appreciate you accepting our invitation. Well, thank you for having me here. Yes, um, I was delighted when um, we were able to talk and um, we discussed, you know, how this would work as far as the interview and just the content and everything. And I'm excited because we've talked about anarchism on the forum before. Um, so I encourage my listeners to go back and, you know, look at all the archives of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. But this is going to be a very special episode because this is quite a dense book. Um it's simplistic in ways as far as a presentation to a larger audience, but it also delves into very specific terminologies and stuff too. So I think the book connects to various audiences and um, the writing style itself. And like I said, your backstory, um, the way it was presented in the book, it really brings everything full force um, when you read the book together. So um I think we're going to have a great conversation this episode 58. Um, small advertisement before we start. The forum is really growing. This is a 75 country outreach forum currently. So we have quite an international presence. About a third of our audience live outside of the United States, which is appropriate because a lot of the content we talk about isn't just domestic, but it's also international in scope. And Mr. Irvin's book is no exception to that. So I just want to say thank you to the listeners and viewers. Subscribe and like Kiko's Freethinkers Forum, especially on our YouTube channel. But you can also find us on any of your podcasts and platforms of choice. Um, I want to open the floor up to Mr. Irvin and ask him, um, can you give the audience a sense of your backstory, like how you grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee? Um, and you can spend as much time as you need because I think it's so relevant. Well, I grew up in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee uh, in um well, I was born in 1947, and uh, to uh, my mother was a domestic for rich white folks, and my dad was a, um, I guess you'd say a chauffeur or a driver, for the, and um, not for the same white folks, but for some other <laughs> white folks. But, but at any rate, um, so I, I was raised, um, you know, at, at those days you had the uh, nuclear family, you know, the, the extended family. And especially in the black community, and my uncle and my other relatives, my cousin, and all us, we all were were in one house basically. And um, 
it, you know, through the early 1960s, um, after, well, first I was, I, when I was five years old, uh, racists came and burned our house down uh, when we were living on the grounds of a, of a, a, for a Catholic um, church, a Catholic school. Uh, they came and burned the, the house down. They didn't want us over there. My uncle worked at the um, at that school. He was a, a janitor there, and uh, they didn't you know they didn't like the fact we were living on the grounds. So uh, some racists came and burned burned it down. We had to move out, and we eventually moved uh, to um, from the east side of town, which was just starting to turn black, and uh, so we moved in a house there. And I don't know, for maybe 30 or 40 years, I lived there in that house. And of course, later on, uh, the police burned the house day, down to keep me from coming back uh, from, you know, when I moved out of town uh, with, wow. with my wife. Uh, that's a story in and of itself. Oh, yeah. But anyway, I, I was raised up in Chattanooga. Uh, but at this time, the uh, civil rights movement had just broken out. You know, I think it was... Um, you know, 57, 58, something like this. And um, I first started hearing about it as a kid. And my mother loved the NACP so much, she had me join it, not not volunteer to join it. She just signed me up for it. <laughs> as, well, as a youth, I was in the NACP. Now, they didn't do anything. I mean, the NACP, they were really just a, a businessman's organization, you know, black business organization. That's all they really cared about. And they, and, and in fact, uh, the guy who was um, over the uh, one, school uh, high school there uh one black high school he um he turned out to be a pivotal figure in trying to stop the protest movement when it broke out in 1960. Uh, i wasn't a high school student myself but my cousin was he was there and uh he and some others on their own decided that they would have a protest in chattanooga and so they uh marched from the um the high school which was you know right on the outskirts of the downtown area and they marched to and through the, um, the the downtown area, and they went into uh, various department stores and uh, demanded that uh, you know they be served. Of course, the, the you know the whites weren't going to serve them. It was legally at the time of uh, racial segregation, so they they felt like they weren't going to serve with people. So the people just sat down. Students just came in there and sat down, right? And um, then the cops came, uh, a fight broke out, first of all, the white racist kids and a, and a Klansmen and, and whoever came and tried to spit on people and hit people in the head and all this kind of stuff. So this particular instance, uh, there was no preacher or something or other telling them not to fight back. And so they jumped up and started fighting these racists back and they drove them out of there. When they ran them out of the, out of the, um, the, the department store, I think it was a Cressy's department store. Uh, as they as they ran them out of that department store, then the police came and they started to arrest them, you know, harass them and arrest them. And um, well, myself and young kids like myself, and and also you know people in the community started to march from the center of you know the black community, which was also downtown. And started to march uh, in large numbers, in fact, to come into the downtown area to protect the students. And um, we were hit with high pressure water hoses, which was years before what happened in Birmingham, you know, which got tremendous attention. But this was years before that it hit us with high pressure water hoses. Uh, they let loose police dogs on us, all kinds of stuff to stop 
stop us from getting to the, you know, the center of the city. And um, so this thing uh, was a battle royale, you know, you might say, you know, and uh, it turned out to be a, a citywide protest. You know, it, it was it was heavy. You know, it had, nothing like that had happened there before. And um, that was the event that I point to, which really radicalized me. I'd never seen black people stand up and do anything to fight back against racism. You know what I'm saying? And um, my, um, you know, my family was just, you know, a typical family. They were, we weren't producing radicals or anything. Or so we didn't, we didn't think we were. And, uh, you know, my mother didn't want me to go down there. But, you know, hey, I'm just going. I'm a, I'm a kid. What do you think? All this excitement going on. I'm, I'm not going to be down there. So a <laughs> bunch of us just pushed our way all the way through from the black community uh, down to downtown to try to get to the downtown area. And uh, so we ran into this wall of police, you know, these police and police dogs and water hoses and, and what have you. And uh, this, but this went on for days. I mean, this kind of stuff. They, because uh, the students that were arrested were quickly replaced by others. And this kept on going for, for, for quite a time. And, and the, uh, you know, the, the mayor and the other white racist officials didn't quite know what to do about it. And so um, they wound up making some kind of concessions. And, uh, and, and when they made the concessions, uh, you know, they, you could eat downtown there and, you know, and other things. And, and a lot of the vestiges, uh, the symbols of segregation were destroyed, you know, just in, in that protest. And, um, a number of us, you know, who saw this were were radicalized by it. You know, something that uh, lasted with us for the rest of our lives. You know, I, I guess at that moment I knew what it is I wanted to do. I wanted to be an activist, and I didn't even know what the word meant at that time. But you know, uh, of course, it just stayed with me that we could fight back, we could win. You know, and we can change the world. I mean, I, I just started thinking about that feverishly for years and years and years. And um, then after that was over, um, you know, I went back to school and so forth because, you know, my parents were not going to let me become a traveling organizer. They were going to, you know, make sure I finished my education and so forth. And so I did, but I continued to try to, rap, to, to, try to rally the youth, you know, even in, in the grade school and, and the junior schools and all this to try to rally them. Uh, and kept that going until I got into high school. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, the officials had broken up the protests and they'd uh, driven people out of the schools, might have driven some people even out of the city. And uh, we weren't able to repeat that. Although, you know, other protests took place uh, there, it wasn't the same. Um, guy got older and eventually I got, you know, drafted into the military against, you know, against my will and so forth. I became an anti-war activist. I was against the war early, in very early stages. And again, I was looking at things that were happening, you know, the, the group that formed in 1960 had gone on to become an anti-war movement, a black anti-war movement, as well as a civil rights organization. And I'm talking about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And, you know, although I couldn't join it at that time, I was influenced by it to a great degree. Uh, it was organizing all over the South. It was changing uh, people's living conditions. It was changing the, the power structure that was uh, against people, the segregated power structure. And uh, 
it wasn't just Dr. King. In fact, uh, it was a new movement by 1960. People don't understand that. Mm -hmm. The Birmingham bus boycott produced Dr. King and, and the adult leadership and so forth. But by 1960, when the uh, the three uh, young brothers went into, you know, uh, I think it's Greensboro, North Carolina, and had their city in there, that sparked a whole new wave of protests, which was led by youth and wasn't under the control of the black pastors and all these other fairly conservative elements. And so um, you know, a whole new stage of activism came on the set. And eventually um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee comes along made of youth and they're much more militant than these uh you know conservative pastors and so forth and they call for much more uh you know dynamic kinds of protest movements and stuff well as i said i couldn't join right then uh, you know i was still too young you know i was i was 10 years old when all this stuff happened mm. and uh but it 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 made an indelible mark on my on me you know what i'm saying and i started looking into this kind of stuff for years to come. So finally, I went, went I wound up going into the service when I uh, turned so-called legal age. Although in my case, they took me. I was seventeen, and they took me into service. And you know, I knew I was on my way to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got into the military, uh, you know, I found elements in there. You know, black youth who were opposed to the war uh, was influenced uh, by that time. Uh, black power was coming on the scene. It was like nineteen sixty. When I went to service, and I think Black Power became a, a you know, a national protest movement by then. And um, there again, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was an essential part of the Black Power movement. It was, a, I don't, the seedbed of it. And um, you know, so a lot of people were, a lot of young people were influenced by it. And and this was a young people's movement. Uh, the Black Power movement was, as opposed to, you know, the Black pastors and so forth in the early stages. And uh, all of this stuff had a deep and lasting impression on me. And by the time I went into the military, I was totally opposed to, to the war. And uh, I refused to go, to go to Vietnam, refused to report. And I was arrested and so forth. And they, and they, they had me on some base uh, in Germany. And uh, this was at a time when they were going to, uh, the, draft was so, um, the draft was so unpopular that um, they had started what they call a levy. And this levy was they would take troops from France, Germany, uh, South Korea, and other places where they had, you know, what the troops were, and they would take those troops and send them to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And um, so we started a protest campaign against it while I was there in Germany. And um, people started, we had people leave and go AWOL or, or or desert the military entirely, and they would go to the you know some southern uh, some uh, countries, in um, I think one of them was uh, Sweden and uh, Denmark and um, I can't remember the but there were several Scandinavian countries that uh, were a source of protection. People went there and 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 just dropped out of the military completely, and. Um, I don't know. I think that um, when um, when they found out this was going on with military intelligence and and the, pol the police, German police and German intelligence found out that this was going on and I was involved in it. And it wasn't just me. There were others in other cities in Germany and other other places where the troops were located. 
And um, when they found out about this, I was arrested and taken to uh, a, a military prison in Mannheim, Germany, which this prison used to be a concentration camp for the for the Nazis, actually. is a vicious place. And, um, you know, I was facing some serious charges. You know, they wanted to charge me with treason at first. And, of course, that's a, a death penalty charge. You, you know, you could lose your life like that. And um, but the uh, the anti-war movement in Germany, some contacts I had made during the time I'd been there, uh, rallied around me and they let people know uh, in other countries, including the United States, let them know I was being held and facing these charges and all this stuff. And uh, I, I did serve some time in the in the prison there waiting for trial. But it, when, when I got to the actual trial, it was so much protest people in the streets and, and around the, the this prison facility, uh, this infamous prison facility in Mannheim, Germany, um, that they were forced to uh, drop the heaviest charges and to just dismiss me from the service. And they couldn't even give me a, um, a dishonorable discharge, which which is like a, you know, a, a blacklist. You know, they couldn't even give me that. Um, but they pushed me out of the service that I was too dangerous and I was turning the troops against the, you know, the, um, the, the higher uh, brass and so forth. And so I was pushed out, came home. And this when I started working with, with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and later the Black Panther Party <clears throat> for a brief period when they were alive, uh, uh, allied or, or in a um, merger. Some people say a merger, some people say it's an alliance, whatever. Uh, they were working together. And... Um, so in the early stages there, I started to sell the Black Panther newspaper when it when it when it came out, and um, you know that was not looked upon fondly by the white power structure and the cops and so forth, and um, I got beat up a lot and take the papers and throw them away and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. They didn't always get a chance to do it, but you know sometimes this would happen, and I had to go to Atlanta to get the newspaper and bring it back to Chattanooga, and. Um, but, uh, you know, and this kind of harassment continued on. But then in, um, that was in 67. And then 60, by 68, the, uh, you know, the assassination of Dr. King took place. There were rebellions all over the country. And even in the uh, state of Tennessee, you know, there were so-called riots, as they call them, uh, as if it was a criminal act, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, these uh, rebellions took place. And one of the places it took place in was Chattanooga, you know, uh, and, and, and Memphis and uh, all the major cities. And um, and after the rebellion took place, uh, the attorney general and the, and the, some of the other cops and I mean, other officials and, and cops as well had started some kind of what they call a treasonous board. You know, supposedly they were going to uh, find that, uh, and they did find make a finding that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the and the uh, at that time it was the Black Panther Party uh, was they had they weren't they didn't have any chapters in um, Tennessee or the South at that time, but they were they it was known that they were uh, working together that and that in point of fact um, the leadership of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was drafted by the leadership of the Black Panther Party to help them uh, build their movement. 
And uh, so they uh, found that this was treason. These these were uh, uh, communist agitators and so forth and so on. And, uh, and so they set up these um, black power grand juries, they call them. And um, they, to investigate, to investigate, um, you know, the, the uh, organizers and activists in, in those movements and in others as well. And um, so I was eventually uh, put to position one of my friends had been a so-called leader of the, uh, you know, the, this faction that at the time of Dr. King's murder had protested the, uh, you know, and, and, and become a leader uh, in, in the campaign against uh, what the cops and the racists were doing. And he was assassinated. He was shot and killed by the police. And uh, that was my, you know, I was my cue uh, to, to get out of, get out of Dodge and, um, you know, and avoid what was, you know, the repression that was coming. You know, 68 and 69 were the years recognized as the repression uh, of the Black struggle and of the uh, anti-war movement and, and, and the New Left, as it was called uh, in, in, back, in, back in those days. And um, so I uh, left first and went, just went to Atlanta and was, you know, living in Atlanta. And uh, then I come to find out later that, in point of fact, the FBI was looking for me on some kind of warrant unlawful flight to avoid prosecution and um so i i had to, i had to, i tried to go underground but you know there was it really wasn't an underground especially for black black people it wasn't really an underground and uh so i, I knew i had to get out of the country and um so i hijacked a plane to cuba and some people think that that's an extraordinary act when you think about it and so forth and so on, but really it wasn't at the time uh, there were a number of these uh, plane hijackings by various activists and other people, uh, for whatever reason, to get out of the United States and to go and ask for political asylum. You know, I don't know that everybody was in my situation, but you know, that's what I, that's what happened to me. And um, so I left. I, I hijacked a plane from um, Atlanta to um, Cuba. And landed in Cuba, you know. And um, while I was there, unfortunately, um, there was a beef between the Cuban government and Eldridge Cleaver, and they were coming down on Black Panthers at that time. You know, um, if you were if you were identified as being a Black Panther, you could be picked up, and many of us were picked up and put in jail and held there for quite some time. Uh, some people um, were thrown, you know, like myself were ultimately uh, thrown out of the country. Uh, others were kept in that prison system, uh, I don't know, indefinitely, I guess. You know, I, I, one person has written a book about it. Uh, he was an ex-Black Panther, uh, William Lee Brent. And he wrote a book called uh, Long Time Gone. He talks about his whole period while he was, um, you know, in the prison system, how he got locked up and talked about how he worked in, in, in the fields and all kinds of stuff. You know, he explained a lot of things. And uh, even myself, I, I, I didn't fully understand what was going on. Anyway, they sent me all out of there. They sent me from um, Cuba and they told me that I'd be going to, to a base in Africa. I assumed that they were talking about at that time uh, sending me to where Eldridge Cleaver was in, in Algeria. But no, it turned out that they just wanted to get me out of the country. They shipped me to um, Prague, Czechoslovakia. And um, 
this was weird. I mean, in, in a sense, because uh, one, I didn't know anything about Prague, Czechoslovakia, <laughs> and it. And in 1969, it was one year after the Soviet Union, as it, as it existed then, and the Warsaw Pact had invaded uh, Czechoslovakia because they said they were going over to the West. The country was going over to the West. They were selling out, so they invaded and had it under military occupation at that time. And um, so I'm there, and all this stuff is going on. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a strange situation where you're in a country and everybody's, you know, the majority of people are white and are Europeans, and um, you are there and, you know, you are confronted with a situation. You don't know what's going on. And, you know, um, this kind of state socialism, I had never, you know, you hear about stuff like this, but I'd never seen it. And you know, you hear you come up in the United States back in those days. You know, the, the anti-communist propaganda was overwhelming. You know, and uh, so, but I was able to see for myself the good and the bad. You know, and um, you know, Czechoslovakia and, and other countries at that time, uh, Eastern European countries, were under the control. You know, of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union itself. You know, they were authoritarian. Uh, socialist societies. You know, people talk about social. Oh, socialism is wonderful. You know, I'm not an I'm not an anti-communist or anti-socialist, but state socialism, state socialism, where you, where you got bureaucrats over you and and a secret police and all that stuff. That ain't so wonderful. You know, that ain't so wonderful. <laughs> and uh, you know, and even though uh, I was out of the country, and um, at that point at least, they they weren't able to get to me. Uh, I had a feeling of unease that this ain't going to turn out too good, you know, and it didn't, you know, I stayed there several months, but, you know, and everything. And, and the authorities didn't know where I was um, back in Chattanooga. They were harassing my friends and harassing anybody, even my family to make them tell, uh, you know, tell the FBI where I was, you know. Uh, but eventually the way I got uh, ratted out was actually the, the Cubans themselves uh, and the and the Czech government actually um, set me up so that the um, consular officials and their security, in particular, could arrest me, but could grab me when when the legal arrest could just grab me, and that's what they did. They, they took me to the uh, uh, American consulate there uh, at that time, and um, they were going to try to just bring me back, you know, just you know. Illegally, there was no legal process or anything they were going to go to. They were just going to grab me, put me on a plane, and bring me back. And uh, I uh, escaped out of there. You know, um, it wasn't a secure facility, it wasn't like a prison or something, you know, it was a consular, uh, you know, uh, facility. And um, I uh, managed to get into an area and escape you know, through uh, a side door. And when I went through the side door, when they realized I'd, I'd gotten out of there, they, they tried to run after me. And, uh, you know, that that wasn't going to happen. I used to run track. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's no way to catch me. And I shot through there and uh, jumped on the train and, and so forth and got away, you know. And then eventually I made contact with uh, this African students group that had been helping me. And so they say, well, you know, we're, we're going to get you, we're going to get you to Africa, and uh, we're going to get you out of the city first. You know, get you to 
um, East Germany, you know, Berlin, East Berlin. And um, I know this sounds like a spy story and in many ways, you know, I don't know. But anyway, uh, they got me East Berlin. And uh, when I got to East Berlin, I was there for a while. And, and but I was detected. I was detected. And um, eventually they came in, rolled in on me one night, drugged me, uh, which is their method, drugged me. And they just smuggled me across the, what they call the 4K zone, which was this zone which um, um, divided East from West, East Germany from West Germany, East Berlin particularly. And um, so they brought me, brought me over to a military base, military intelligence base, and they started questioning me, you know, eventually, you know, using uh, physical torture to try to get information. And um, they couldn't get any information. But what happened is um, the FBI knew about it, me being arrested. And they started asking the State Department, why is it this guy brought back into our custody? What do we have to do to get him? And uh, so they started pressuring him. And then they realized that they'd have to send me back. So. They got some uh, people and uh, some of the security people to put me on a plane and bring me back to New York City. And I was there in New York City uh, until, you know, somebody dealt with my case legally, you know. Now, I was facing a death penalty at that time. Uh, aircraft piracy was, a, was a, a death penalty charge. And uh, that's my wife. And, 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 uh, it um it was a dangerous situation. It was a dangerous time for me, you know. Uh, I was like twenty years old, and I'm facing you know either in prison the rest of my life, or in their case, they wanted to put me before a hanging judge in Georgia, and um, I could be sentenced to death. And so that was a predicament for me. And uh, <clears throat> the only reason when I went back to Georgia that I wasn't sentenced to death, but for one, uh, I met a political prisoner, Martin Sostry, who became my mentor and everything. And that's, that's the person who first explained anarchism to me, which I wasn't sympathetic to at all because it was just some wild white boys and you know crazy <laughs> people that seemed like to me and they weren't doing anything, it had nothing to do with the black struggle at all. So. I just, you know, dismissed them. But I met him and he was an anarchist and he, uh, black Puerto Rican, and he's also probably at that time the best known political prisoner in the world, 69. And um, I used to meet him every day and we'd have political education while we were having lunch, you know. And he uh, was also, you know, like I said, a jailhouse lawyer. He was there because he was suing the state of uh, New York uh, for violating the rights of prisoners. And so he um, told me a strategy that I could use to defeat the death penalty portion of my case. And so, you know, he told me to go into court to tell them that I was going to, I wanted to testify that I'd been tortured, that would tell them what the American government had been doing uh, in Germany and, and in other countries and so on and so on. And, Create a national, you know, create a uh, um, international incident because the German authorities were furious that someone had been on their 
um, territory and was kidnapped and taken out. And um, so I um, told the judge I was going to talk about this. I was going to go to the news media with it and so forth and so on. And he hurried up and got me into a room, you know, and they all agreed that they, they, they would remove the death penalty portion of the case uh, if I would go back to Georgia. You know, what, you know, I had to go. I mean, you know, this was a deportation period. So I had to go, but I didn't have to go down there in fear of my life. And uh, so this is Brother Martin Sastry, who became, like I said, my political mentor, uh, used to teach me all about anarchism every day. And, you know, from, coming from him, a, a black person, uh, he said that this is not just an ideology for white people. He said it may be majority white at this moment, but it's people all over the world have been part of this movement and, uh, have, and you know, even had cultures uh, that preceded uh, the European use of uh, anarchism. Anyway, uh, he talked about that. You know, the idea of stateless socialism actually goes back further than just the, uh, you know, Marxist concepts alone uh, of Marxism-Leninism, you know. Um, that was one of the things that I found out, which I had no idea about. I had no idea at all because, you know, you don't hear that kind of discussion in the American media or anything now, you know, in the media now or back then, you know, and certainly uh, anti-communism was a mechanism for the, the American government to hold on to power and to keep a, a hostile political dynamic with the Russian government, you know, and they, they continue to do that up to this very day. And I'm going to, I'm just blurting on here, brother. I'm not, yeah, give you the opportunity to ask questions. No, no, this is absolutely perfect. Um, that was kind of the idea is to sort of start with your backstory. Um, because again, it's mesmerizing, it's intriguing, it's sad, it's eye-opening at the same time. And I think that 30 minutes or so was a good opening for the audience to get an idea of who you are and what you've been through. So no, uh, I was I was enjoying every second of it. Um but I did have a question in response to something you just said about, because you answered my questions that I was going to ask about um, Martin Sostre. I actually got a few questions about him and who influenced him as far as his anarchy. How did he get introduced to it? But I was curious, um, what you were describing towards the end about, you made a comment about a stateless society before Marx. I thought about um, this, in, before we interviewed, I thought about, Quilombismo. I don't know if you're familiar with quilombos in Brazil. Um, they were basically the resistant uh, communities. A lot of the blacks had to go into the jungle and escape from the colonizers and then slavers. And so they created these communities deep in the jungle to where they self-sustained themselves. And this is before Brazil was even a country. This was like, we're talking about the 1500s, like the late 1500s. So, um, there is a history in different continents of these societies existing. Yeah, I was actually told about that um, some years uh, ago. Um, I, I wasn't aware of it at first. And uh, there's there's been a lot of instances where um, peoples of, of color um, under one historical circumstance or another, like you say, the this resistance to slavery, uh, which occurred really all over uh, the Caribbean. And, um, you know, they uh, had created these maroon societies, as they call them. And um, 
course, I've got my 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 fellow uh, comrade and and uh, friend uh, Madibo Kadali, uh, well-known uh, radical black professor, among other things, and uh, he's written extensively on that. Uh, uh, you know the the maroons and and also the uh, uh, dual power institutions and so forth uh, that was was done by the Africans and African slaves uh, were ex-slaves because they ran away uh, and, and built a new life for themselves. And um, so, yeah, that is important to understand that. Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll be forever thinking that it was, it was just some uh, Europeans and somewhere in Europe and they did this and they did that and not understanding that there was actually a stage uh, uh, preceding that. And uh, the whole of human history, according to Medibo, uh, the whole of human history has examples of uh, dual power and statelessness and so forth. And uh, it's just that things um, came together in a strong European state when they, you know, built certain certain types of societies uh, that uh, place emphasis on authority and on uh, leaders and so forth. Those things have um, predominated, or, or they have dominated the uh, imagination of people in this period, and so th that's one of the reasons why a lot of people don't think that there's an alternative to living a certain way, the, you know, a certain kind of society like what we're in now, uh, which is it's an empire, but uh, it's also a certain kind of a nation state that um, you know uh, has a long period of oppression of black people. You know, both those who were in slavery and those who came out of slavery, you know, have had to suffer the same conditions. And uh, so, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Martin Sostri was an important historical figure. He talked about those things. And, um, you know, being around him was a daily education, actually. And, you know, he kept pointing out to me that uh, anarchism is not just something for, you know, white academics or or, you know, some privileged white people who uh, decide to go go along, go away from the uh, status uh, um, society or something, or, or from the uh, major culture. You know, he, he says that it's an international, it's a universal political theory and method of struggle. And uh, people from all over the world can use it and have used it. It's just that they don't want to recognize, you know, the Europeans don't want to recognize that there have been others that have played a role in uh, contributing to, you know, anarchist principles, what we're calling anarchism, uh, principles and so forth. And of course, anarchism, you know, since we're going to get to this itself, is just um, a form of socialism. It's, it, it's the other side of state socialism, you know. We know about state socialism because that's what dominate has been dominant or had been dominant, you know, through the Soviet Union and so forth and the, and the rise of, of that kind of, uh, uh, of revolutionary socialism as it called itself then. We know about these things and we can we can see the the years that it was in power and we can see the the collapse and 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 where we are today, you know. Uh, so there's been a worldwide um, crisis in socialist ideology, you know, and there's, you know, people don't understand or, you know, one of the things I try to make clear in anarchism and the Black Revolution when I first wrote it was that there are different 
there are different kinds of socialism. There's a couple, a, a couple, if you want to say it that way, of, um, of of state socialist models. One is obviously the kind that embraces a capitalist state. Uh, say, uh, you know, what you got, uh, you know, democratic socialism, they call it. And and then, of course, you you got um, the, the authoritarian regimes that were uh, erected, starting with the Soviet Union, as you call itself then, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, and how all the countries that came out after it uh, were in lockstep with that political model. You know, that political model was the dominant political theory and uh, practice uh, in, in that period. And... Um, what happened to me uh, was that I had been uh, exposed to all of this stuff, you know, through the Black Panther Party, through uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and through just rac radical activism in that period in the 1960s. I'd been exposed to it, and I had turned against it, you know, to be quite honest. I don't mean that I just, you know, went over to some right-wing stuff. I don't, I'm not saying that, but <laughs> I learned uh, that there had to be a better way. There had to be a better way. Uh, there had to be a new a new path uh, paved, and um, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen, you know. And so I've been on this road uh, now. It's, it's been a lonely road because there's been very few people that agreed with me, especially black people. Uh, but it's like everything else. Um, truth will out, as they say, you know. Uh, the truth of something, the truth of a situation, the truth of, of an ideology, the truth of of, of a form of struggle, all of these things will eventually will out. And that's not to say that my experiences as an anarchist or within the European anarchist movement uh, has been a good one. Uh, it hasn't. I've, I've had to fight all the way. Every step of the way, I've had to fight what I call an internal racism, uh, you know, a, a kind of anti-blackness and all that. I've had to fight all that and eventually uh, was that managed to create a... Um, Black Anarchist uh, Federation back in uh, 94, I think it was, in, in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, the Black Autonomy Federation. And um, it stayed in existence a long time, considering all that, you know, has, has been erected against it. Um, but these things are important. I mean, we're getting to the stage. I think most of the people now in the movement knows that a Black anarchism is coming and that this black anarchism is going to not only shake all political theory um, but it's also going to shake the world in terms of its ability to struggle and and to incorporate um, the struggles of people who are colonized or neo-colonialism in this period but colonized peoples as well as those of us in various uh, countries, you know, European countries who live there and, and have built a, a long-term residence, you know what I'm saying, uh, mm -hmm. over, over the years, because there's a large black population has always been in the UK and even in France and, and everywhere else. Now it's really everywhere. Um, and, um, but the conditions that people are having to live under, um, we'll have to struggle against that. We'll have to struggle against it. And in, in, in our struggle against it, we, I think, will manage to transform those societies as well. We will be able to discard uh, all forms of neo-colonialism, 
and capitalist oppression and any other type of oppression, especially with status uh, oppression. So, I had a question based, and by the way, I appreciate you going into that. We're in sync. We're in sync with Renzo when it comes, because I was going to ask you about the three types of socialism, the three major types of socialism. You already documented those libertarian, authoritarian, democratic socialism. There's a rift between Marxist, Leninist, and anarchist in general. Mm -hmm. I want to know from a black, a black anarchist perspective, what is that major point of contention between those two groups? And where would you say a black anarchist perspective would differ from just the overall anarchist um, communities? Well, from my standpoint, um, you know, and, and when I first wrote Anarchism in the Black Revolution, uh, it was because it was at a time when there was, you know, massive black resistance in the United States and in every other country. Uh, you know, the black power movement was an international movement. A lot of people don't really realize that, but it was. And uh, so uh, when I wrote Anarchism and the Black Revolution, it was because the anarchist movement in the United States and Europe and everywhere else simply didn't pay any attention to this struggle. They would see it, they, you know, and so forth, but they didn't unite with it. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't support it and so forth is what I'm saying. And so I wrote, I first wrote Anarchism and the Black Revolution to point that out and then to start giving a voice to those who were like me and like Martin Sustry, you know, that I thought, and uh, start um, encouraging the rising of a, uh, a Black anarchist tendency. Black anarchism is going to be fundamentally different from, uh, you know, what we will we'll call white anarchism or whatever you want, you know, European anarchism. It's going to be fundamentally different in the sense that one, it has a class politics that uh, is linked to the street, has to have it. I can't say everybody in whatever group, every group is going to have, but from my perspective, it's always been about building a movement to, you know, for the poor, for, you know, for against uh, the, 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 the um, capitalist class, against the bosses, like, you know, that people will have a way of using anarchism as a model to fight against uh, the status quo, you know, and and um, I, I, when I first went into anarchism, I became a uh, anarcho-syndicalist because uh, I believed in a radical uh, labor perspective, you know, I, I, working class perspective. That was one of the things I united with, and I can't necessarily say I'm an uh, I'm an anarcho-syndicalist today, but I am. Uh, certainly still sympathetic to the to that perspective of the poor, those on the bottom have got to rise up against those on top. Now, you know, a lot of the, the historical white anarchists have said the same thing to some degree, but um, for the most part, um, and especially in the United States and, and, and a lot of other Western countries, they have uh, instead uh, sort of, got, you know, gone into this thing of of an intellectual position, an intellectual position, as opposed to a radical political position where we're going to actually fight to create a new society. Now, people give lip service to all of that, but they weren't going to Africa to see that, the, you know, to help the people in Africa fight against uh, colonial rule. They weren't uh, reaching down for really poor people who are on the bottom 
and, and lifting them up and, and, and you know, fighting the bosses in that sense. Uh, they were, you know, they might say that they supported the white working people and so forth and so on. But the reality was that most of these forces were, some of them were bourgeoisie and, and you know, out of, from the bourgeoisie and some of them were uh, petite bourgeoisie, you know, but that, that was the orientation, the political orientation. And um, so I think that if, if black anarchism is going to accomplish anything or stand for anything, it will have to take a revolutionary perspective based on the actual material conditions of black people and of the uh, of the working class as a whole. Uh, but uh, it'll have to be more of a, a movement that uh, tries to transform the whole of society and do and level and level the social conditioning for everybody, social conditions for everybody. It has to uh, dismantle the entire um, you know, status system. That goes without saying to some extent. But it also has to dismantle the the um, economic and political structure. You know, some people think, you know, that, you know, that the answer, if you can't have a revolution of that sort, of, you know, of, uh, was is to turn to um, electoral politics. And all electoral politics is just another way that the rich control the people. You know, that's all it is. And, um, you know, it, it, there's complicated things involved with that in the sense that um, I don't believe in electoral politics, but I think in terms of, you know, uh, people, you know, the working class um, should have the right to vote. The right to vote is different from who you're voting for and the political arrangements and so forth. Um, you know, whatever form we can, you know, I've, I've been in movements where we fought against, uh, you know, the thing to keep black people from having the right to vote. But that's a different thing than saying you got to vote for Biden or you got to vote for uh, Obama or whatever. You know, that's a different kind of movement. Um, I think, in fact, that. Uh, any so-called electoral power should be in the hands of the people with a, uh, what well, one, a dual power against City Hall and the rest of the government apparatus, but also uh, in terms of creating a um, urban, um, I'm going to call it a assembly, mm -hmm. radical assembly, in terms of that, and, you know, keep the politicians out of it, period, and keep politics period conservative politics out of it uh i think that we need to you know those are practical things you know people talk about um utopia you know oh it's uh, it's all utopia <laughs> well i always thought about it in terms of what i call cracktopia <laughs> yes <laughs> there's a there's a society that we're trying to create that has practical program a practical program to achieve it and to see that people live, can live a certain way, you know what I'm saying, a, a new kind of society that's, that's practical. It may be utopian in the sense that it's talking about doing away with the system that exists now and building something new, but uh, every um, movement and every idea, at one time or another, people thought it was just impossible. We should always make impossible demands. Even the idea of civil rights and destroying uh, the um, 
segregationist system in the 50s until the, the movement came on the set. Nobody believed it was possible. They thought we we're all going to get killed or, 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 you know, put in prison or whatever. You know what I'm saying? They never considered uh, the effect of a movement. A movement comes along to change social reality. That's, that's what it really is here to do. And, uh, and also topple those in authority who have been oppressing the people. You know, that, that, those two things alone are objectives of I me. Mean, you can, you know, Black Panther Party had a 10 point plan and then so mm -hmm. other groups have had a plan and so forth. But everything has to revolve around uh, serving the people. No movement or no organization should be in existence that doesn't have any plan at all for serving the people and, you know, and changing the reality of those of us at the bottom. We're part of the masses, as I'm always being told uh, by my wife, who's an activist. We're part of the masses. And um, if you get to the stage where you think that organizers and activists are superior to or independent of the masses, then we get in serious trouble. Then we get authoritarian methods within our own movement. And that's what happened. That's happened before. Uh, you know, I even contend that's what happened to the Black Panther Party, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, I had a question about, you brought up a neighborhood gem, general assembly and anarchism in the Black Revolution. My question is, what is, what is a neighborhood assembly, and is that city-specific, or are there rural areas that have a an infrastructure that makes that more of a, a reality? No, I think uh, right in the cities. I made the point to say call it urban, uh, mm -hmm. but 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 no, I think right in the communities where we are, we can create uh, dual power uh, as a alternative to the ruling classes program and to the other elements, you know, allied with the ruling class. We can we can bring up a, a, a movement and a campaign that's in opposition to that, and we can also get a practice where people in the community come together and, and talk about social change or, or even just whatever changes they want within their community, uh, whatever kind of crisis they're facing. Um, so I think that if you put that together um, with a, you know, even if it's a broad, a widespread or uh, broad-based kind of theory, you have the practical aspect of organizing you have it where people understand it because you can't sell theories or, or programs to people that they don't understand or that they resist you know so you have to take um i, I tell people all the time they get hung up on this thing well i'm an anarchist and we're this and we're that and i said well no no that's not it you got it wrong we are not better than the people uh, we are not even intellectually superior to the masses of people. It's just that we've got a series of, of ideas, we've got plans, and we have to be able to implement them. If we can't implement them, that just means that what your ideas were were either fraudulent or, uh, you know, or they were ahead of the people or, or what have you, that they don't meet the needs of the people. And so we're part of the people. So we're dealing with uh, how do we educate people? Uh, popular education. I don't even use the term political education anymore. 
popular education so that they can see the conditions they're in so that they can work with with the organizers to prescribe a plan in opposition then that that's what i said dual power we want to create a situation where it ain't just the rich or the politicians dictating to the people you know mm-hmm. we're talking about the people in being in a position to combat what the government does as well as come up with their own programs in opposition so i think if we look at it like that and organizers being uh, respective of the masses of people and being that they understand the communities they come from. That's why it's important. I said Black anarchism has to represent the communities they come from. They, are, Of course, we're going to be part of any broad, widespread event like a revolution that takes place in this country. The Black struggle is going to be part of it, probably you know, the leaderships of it, whatever. But um, we have to understand our role as organizers and as, as revolutionaries is not to supersede the people. That's what that's what's happened too much already in Russia. That's what's happened, and in other places, this this whole vanguard uh, mentality and and organizing style has led to uh, some very bad outcomes. You know. We want to put power in the hands of the people themselves, not just in the hands of bureaucrats, not just in the hands of, of politicians, not just in the hands of pastors or, or whomever the uh, elite force is we're talking about. Uh, put it in the hands of ordinary people mm-hmm. and see what they can come up with. They certainly, you know, ordinary people can't come up with anything worse than what is happening right now, because what's happening right now is just we're being led to slaughter, you know, essentially, you know. Uh, we're at a, a deep crisis worldwide, and um, we're going to have to stand up now. You know, an ordinary person is going to have to stand up now or be destroyed uh, when these fools uh, uh, destroy the planet. That's what's happening, in fact. I mean, there ain't no two ways of putting it. They're destroying the planet, and we have two choices. We can have, you know, I call it uh, libertarian socialism. We can have libertarian socialism or we can have barbarism, fascism, and um, a corporate state. That's what we can have. Uh, we got we got our choice. And in one sense, maybe we don't have a choice, but we're going to have to fight on one side or the other. You know, and uh, that's the moment in history we're at right now. I, I have to say, when I read your book, is one of the most introspective books I've read when you talk about politics in general, because um, first of all, most people probably previous to this interview didn't have the nuanced view of what anarchisms are, black anarchy, um, considering, because I mean, you break everything down within anarchy is not a simplistic thing. There's very specific individualist, mutualist, collectivist, like you break down all these different categories, anarchist, communist, and um, this is information that is probably brand new to an audience that we're introducing this to today. But I said it's very introspective because it's, it looks from within and you ju- you definitely look in the mirror when you're writing this book because you, you criticize the Black Panther Party, you criticize the shortcomings of um, these groups like Black Lives Matter, like how it, it was a great um, 
movement when it started, the people, when the people in control, but when the bureaucracy sort of took control, the heads of the organization, and then you get money involved with it, co-optation by the Democrats or whatever it is, um, you bring out the flaws within, um, I guess I would call it black political thought in general, not even just anarchy, but just black political thought in general. I thought that was one of the most significant um, observations of the book. And one thing in particular, I've had guests come on, I'm not going to out them, but there's always this talk about community control, community control, community control, especially when you talk about community control of the police. And I think your work was the first one that sort of said, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about community control of the police? Um, we need to have these sustainable communities for ourselves. We don't need community control of the police. And I just, I had to step back for a second. I was like, wow, I've never considered that before. Could you tell the audience what you mean um, by how that wouldn't work, a community control of the police, um, based on your perspective? Well, the, the ideas for uh, community control of the police actually um, as far as I know, came from the Black Panther Party uh, when they were uh, running an electoral campaign in the uh, city of uh, Berkeley, California, and they wanted to decentralize the police department and so forth. Uh, but the ideas later got to the point where they, you know, the ideas of the local communities being able to control the, control the police and their administration and so forth and to stop shootings and so forth and so on. And that sounds like a good idea. And to a certain extent, uh, it you know you, you could say, oh, well, that's, that's that's what we want. Well, the reality is you're always looking at, at this from the standpoint of a balance of forces. And you know if you leave the guns in the hands of the police and you leave the police system and the policing system in place, then you are responsible for whatever crimes they commit. Right, and that's the rich responsible for the crimes they commit and the and the you know higher level officials. But um, we want to uh, disband the police and to put power in the hands of the people themselves. And whatever resources go to the police agencies in terms of you know money, so that money should go to and to the people themselves and to the communities, because that's what stops so-called crime anyway is people having uh, the ability to have resources to survive with, not only survive but to actually thrive and and take their uh, communities and turn them into livable uh, institutions. You know, that's what we want to do. And that's even while capitalism is he still here. Um, and so if we're talking about just community control of the police, we're effectively saying that we want the police to stay here indefinitely. And let me just say this, and, and, and people can dispute it all they want to, and that's fine. But the police were created as an institution uh, to deal with slavery and controlling slaves who wanted to run away, who ran away uh, from the from the uh, slave plantation, or who created uh, uh, insurrections or you know or so-called uh, slave rebellions and so forth. That's why they created the police to protect the plantation. Uh, and uh, of course, the richest plantation owner uh, in the South was. Uh, the head of what became the head of the, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, uh, Bedford Forest. And uh, 
So um, if we understand the origins of the police uh, is a racist origin and is designed to keep black people, particularly in, in enslavement and under the control of whatever power is around, you know, whether it's capitalism or, or fascism or whatever, that's the role of the police. And um, so we, in my estimation, we, if we're building a new society, or even right now, if we're trying to control the police, I don't think we can control them by letting them keep guns and go in the community and shoot people. And that's what's happening. I mean, they, they've killed 35,000 people since 1980 when, they, when, when, the, when the federal government and the, and the police agencies adopted racial profiling and paramilitary policing. They've killed 35,000 people. And that's just the ones that they reported to and said, yes, we killed them. Uh, there are most of the police agencies, that was only about 13% of all police agencies. The rest of them refused to report to the government on, on how many people they killed. Uh, I've been thinking for quite some time that we should have some sort of campaign to find out, to have organizers going around to find out how many people have been killed in their city. It's, it's been 81 killed here in uh, Chattanooga, Hamilton County. Uh, so many people have been killed that we started a body count. That's, uh, that's what we call it, body count. So yeah, I don't think there's any useful role for the police. And whatever contradictions um, exist in our community, and in fact, in all com communities or in this society generally, are caused by the government itself. Uh, even the so-called gangs and and wild youth, as they call them, and so forth, uh, even that, and, and and murderers and the rest of them, you can act, you can look at what has been happening, and you can say that this is actually the result of government policies. Poverty, uh, you know, violence, uh, disrupting and destroying families. All these things can be pointed to by the government and those in power, the elite. You can point directly to them. If you look at it like that, then you'll understand what the, why are we protecting the police as an institution who refuse to stop killing uh, black people, is, uh, particularly in disproportionate numbers, but people... Uh, on the bottom and in the, you know on the middle, refuse to stop killing them, stop oppressing us. You know they're not going to do it voluntarily. We will have to seize power, seize their power, and take that away from them. And we will only be able to do that when there's a, a social revolution. Ultimately, I mean we can back them up, but seizing power away from them, not seizing power to establish a dictatorship. That, that, that's the worst thing that's happened up to this point. That's Marxist-Leninism. Uh, but we want to have it where we take power, you know, the masses of people take power and, and, put, and put the power in the hands of the people themselves, not in the hands of politicians, as I say, or bureaucrats or cops or, or whatever. You know, an authoritarian society is always one that justifies the worst atrocities, whether shooting down some kid, uh, or, or, or they a pregnant pregnant mother, pregnant black mother, shot and killed by a cop because he said that she drove her car away or something or other. 
You know, this mm -hmm. kind of stuff is going on over and over and over. And as I said, uh, the 35,000 people I've been quoted didn't come from me. It actually came from um, a British journal called The Lancet and also the um, a Guardian newspaper. They actually did the research and they confronted American officials and they said American officials were 17,000 short of the number of people actually killed between 1980 and uh, I think it was 2020. So, uh, you know, these are lessons for us. Uh, we're not going to uh, reform the police. In fact, you can't reform the police. Not really. Uh, you know, you can't reform the police. Um, what you have to understand is that the police are products of this system. Mm -hmm. They're products of this system, and the system itself will have to be changed. Um, yes, and that's that. That was the the most um is very consistent too. Like if, if people read the book, then that rationale about defunding the police, all those things are reforms. And you're saying that because you're still upholding the same status institution, so so all you're doing is just. You, it's just it's it's a static almost because you're not dismantling anything. It, the system is still intact the way it was it still is. intended to be intact. Right. You know, but, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was with a group of people here in Chattanooga. Some it's been some years ago. They tried to fight police brutality. You know, and it started it started the movement off in here. here. And um, <clears throat> to, we couldn't resolve anything. We couldn't stop them from doing anything. And uh, then um, one of the persons who, uh, whose father had been murdered here by the police, um, she uh, said, well, look, let's sue them. Let's sue these people. Well, the first time they, they, they her family tried to sue, uh, they were stopped and, and humiliated by the, the, the cops and, the, and their judge saying that uh, they had no right to even sue, that, that you know, it was qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can't resist the police. You can't fight the police. Of course, all of this was, you know, shown to be false in the 1960s. But never mind that. Uh, the point is really that um, we filed a lawsuit against the government. We got rid of the mayor. We got rid of the racist police commissioner and got rid of all these uh, old school elements that had been in there for years. And what happened? They, they formed a new government here in Chattanooga. And the new government came in and they've been killing black people ever, ever since. They've killed two people this month. And, uh, you know, like I said, the last count that we had, there was about 81 people killed in this area. And that includes people who were beaten to death, people who were hung, uh, people who were shot, and all, all kind of ways, you know what I'm saying? But uh, it's a reign of terror. And you can, I would assume and bet you that in most cities in the country, you have that situation. In fact, I know for a fact you have it. Even the governor's aware of it now. That's why they're having these um, cities that um, they make the police adopt new policies, you know, what they call them pattern and practice investigations and all this kind of stuff. Well, there again, you know, you have to look at the situation and say, well, uh, if you say that the police have a job and that people can't resolve their own problems in the society, then, then you have to have a military, militarized force 
And you're going to always have these situations, especially with white cops that hate black people and who get jobs that have this power. They can they can provoke an incident. You know, it might not be a, a legitimate incident at all. And the cop come in and what they do is provoke an incident. They kill a 17 year old boy here the other day. And basically what they did is they provoked an incident and, and then turned around and removed the family away from it and just turned around and shot him and killed him. So, uh, and this is just over and over and over again in this country. Every day somebody's being killed by the police. And so the police have to be looked at as a death squad. You know, we have to use political education to make people understand that the police are a death squad. Uh, I think somebody said that the highest uh, form of death for black people is police shootings or, or, or police murder. And uh, that is a denunciation uh, that should set people to thinking. But I don't I just don't think people are being confronted with things because they may not be told about stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's one of the things that we have to do as organizers is not only just, you know, get out in the street and fight it or whatever, but we also got to be able to educate people about what the true role of the police is and, and, the, and the true atrocities that they've committed in society already. A lot of people think it's just what they see on television, uh, uh, the, you know, two or three cases, five cases, something like that. And they think that's all of it. And they don't realize that it's been a long train of abuses and, and, and a long train of murders, bodies piled up already, you know, thousands of people have been killed. In fact, there's been more people killed. Uh, if you look at it in terms of American troops, there's been more people killed in the United States by the police. They were killed uh, in Iraq and uh, uh, Afghanistan, two mm. recent wars. So What's happening is that there's a war being waged on on black people and 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 you know working class and poor people in this country. That's what's happening. You know, that's really what's happening. And if you understand it like that, then you can you can see that it's not in your interest to continue to support an armed force who doesn't listen listen to anybody. That you have no ability to tell them what to do or you know stop them. It's an eye interest to, to remove a group like that, to, in point, in point of fact, uh, have them dismantled. So, know, as, as... you that was that towards the end of the book, um, at the very thick of the book, you talked about, um, you you dedicate a whole chapter to it about the hood, and you you give some um, some steps into establishing these communities. Is that the part you talked about militia, black militia? So would that replace what we know as the police? Is that how it would be basically the community policing itself? Well, you know, I won't say that that's that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, I, I will say that you know because we are a people that are in danger. You know, we're in danger from being. Uh, wiped out by racists coming into the community and shooting people down. You're starting to see that. You're going to see it more and more. Um, we need a force to 
push these people out and to respond to these people ourselves. And we also need a situation, uh, the ability to control if there are social problems in the community that people in the community deal with it. They don't have to shoot anybody down. They understand they've been in the same position and uh, they understand from living in the community that we can resolve a lot of differences ourselves. And, and you know, even the government knows it. That's why they ever so often send out these so-called peace police or whatever you want to call them. And uh, here, in, here in Chattanooga, they've given a million dollars to the Nation of Islam to uh, run a, a parallel police force in the black community. Mm. You know, and they've given them, given them uh, surplus police cars and all this kind of stuff. And, and so, uh, you know, the government knows that a lot of these things can be resolved without resorting to force. But whenever they come in our community, they come in with the intention of uh, using force, you know, in, in most situations that resolve that require it at all. Uh, but they come in, they're not protecting anyone. They're terrorizing the community. You know, that's what's happening. Um, but again, it's, it's about a kind of organizers, activists have to give a certain kind of political education to people, not just, you know, be out to protest the, the crimes that they commit when they kill somebody or mm -hmm. waiting around for the next person to be killed. We need to be able to start uh, transforming the conditions that allow these shootings to take place. We need to be on a mass scale educating people uh, what all of this actually means and how much of it is actually going on so that they don't think that somebody got shot three weeks ago or whatever is the whole total of what it, what's gone down. And it's been, you know, like here in this city, there's been, uh, like I said, over 80. I even contend it's more than that, but we'll, we'll just say over 80. And uh, in a city this size, this is smaller than, than Knoxville and smaller than a lot of other places. And you have these number of people being killed in these so-called violent incidents. It tells you that something is wrong socially mm -hmm. uh, and that this government, this corrupt government has created the conditions and now they want to use the police to beat down people and to beat down communities in particular. So uh, that's one of the things we have to see. That's why I said it's about organizing as far as we're concerned. It's about organizing and it's about putting power in the hands of the people. And of course, we were talking about dual power and we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, a number of things in terms of creating um, assemblies, for instance, urban assemblies. And we call it that, you know, it's, it's some, I call it something that's in the book, but it's the same thing. And um, it's just a, a way of putting hand, power in the hands of people so that they understand what is going on and they understand that they can take independent action in opposition to those in authority so that they don't have to accept the police coming in and, and doing this stuff. They don't have to accept a kind of budget uh, of social money that, that's being stolen and given to the rich and, and the black community don't get anything. That's why our communities are so poor. That's why our communities are so run down because they don't take the money that they get from you know people's taxes and so forth. They don't take that money and do anything with it in our communities. You know, except when they're running for office and want to say, I died so and so, so and so. I put some sidewalks in. Yeah, well, the sidewalk should have been in, in the first place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, so I think, you know, organizers have to deal with this stuff on a daily basis, a day to day, it's a day to day campaign. You got to train, 
we have I've been training, I've been trying to train organizers so that they understand that their ideas are not just for fashion or, or you can say that you're an intelligent person or something like that. It's just you've got this intellectual uh pursuit of, of something or other. You you have to be able to make it have a practical effect in changing people's lives. And in our case, nobody in this period, and it really had been for years, has even looked at the black community and tried to do anything for it, for the people. They've tried to profit from the people's misery, or they've tried to, you know, push their career or something or other. But the people themselves have to be organized, trained, so that they can deal with their own circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be independent, autonomous. And when we get to that stage, or even when we start fighting for that stage, we will discover a new type of strength that we haven't seen in, in a long, long time. That's what the 60s was. The 60s was really about a type of black autonomous movements that came, you know, they weren't run by white people. Even Dr. King was, you know, he was conservative compared to a lot mm-hmm. of the groups back then. But he was not telling white folks to come and run his group. Exactly. Or, or, or that only a white man can do this. Or, or, you know, it's a ridiculous uh, proposition from the beginning. But it was much, you know, a much deeper issue than that. I mean, the, the, you know, that black people who had been oppressed all these years and who had been told that they couldn't do anything to, uh, you know, change their predicament and so forth, stood up at this historical period and took over their own destinies. And were it not for you know the power of the of the United States government and military, we had a whole new, whole new uh, political system and social system in this country. So we we need to understand that. And so when you understand that, you know things are possible. A lot of people don't think think things are possible, and they want you to believe that things are possible. It's just that we don't attempt it anymore, mm-hmm. and we are uh, neutralized. Uh, we are brainwashed to some extent, a word like that. I don't like to use that term that much because it, it can be seen as some by as disrespectful. But the truth is we are uh, under control of someone else. And we have to break free of that. And we have to build new movements with new ideas. You know, if you're going to try the same stuff over and over again, this is not the 1960s. You know, people, you know, there have been 25 attempts to create the Black Panther Party in the in the United States since the uh, I guess 1986. I'm told mm-hmm. uh, since 1986, there have been 25 attempts to create the Black Panther Party over again, and every one of them failed. Every one of them failed, and it's because you can't just take you know what do you call it jailbreak out of history. You can't jailbreak out of history that that movement and that time created a fertile ground for a movement like that to come into existence. Now it's got to be a different kind of movement. It's got to have new ideas. It's got to recognize that the the people who run the system have figured out all the tricks from the 60s and have now uh, subverted all of that. And uh, we need to therefore build a new kind of movement. It has a different kind of um, accountability and strength based in the community itself as opposed to uh, some bureaucrat or some nonprofit organization, which is another thing they love to do. 
was get these nonprofit organizations that are funded by mm -hmm. uh, rich white uh, foundations, and they send them in the black community and other communities, and they you know trick people. They just trick them, and uh, so we got to go past that. Got to go past uh, electoral politics. All is another thing that they tell people that that's, you have to have. Uh, you want to get things changed in America, you got to vote. Mm -hmm. And we know for a fact that one is that we couldn't, we haven't voted in this country that long. I mean, you know, this country has been around, what, 500 years? And I think maybe 100 years, maybe 100 years of all of that history, Black people have been allowed to vote. And uh, even when they've been allowed to vote, and most of the time we have been uh, kept from voting, through terrorism and whatever other means. And now they got the system rigged in such a way that even if you do vote, you put the wrong people in office, you 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 strip yourself of any power, you strip your community of any ability to uh, transform its conditions and to demand resources, you know, with, with existing government. They should be, uh, you know, we should be forcing them to listen to us in terms of budgets and everything else. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. there's things we can do right now, I'm saying. Uh, not not to say when a revolution comes or whatever. That's a, another stage. You know, we, we have to make it happen, but it's another stage. But meanwhile, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, we've got the largest prison population in the world. And most of them in there look like you and I. Uh, we got, um, you know, more people killed in the United States than have been killed in many foreign wars. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of them look like you and I. And um and then, you know, poverty, the level of poverty in this country, this this poor white people, they always have been, but the majority uh of poor people, it, you know, poverty is just about a black thing almost, uh, or or certainly a people of color thing, but that, that's that's what poverty is and what they're doing to us and to our communities and so forth. So if we understand these kind of things, then we're able to organize uh on a level. It, it isn't just some ideology alone. I keep tell, telling people that, young people, it ain't just you have an ideology. You have to make it apply to life daily situations. You have to make it apply to structures of oppression, structures of repression. You have to make it. It's not uh, just um, one issue, single issue campaign or something or other. It's a structure. It's a, it's a people have talked about a structural racism. Yeah, it is. It's been around like that for a long time. And, um, you know, whether white folks recognize it or whether uh, black middle class people or whatever, you know, recognize it as another thing. But we have to make sure that someone recognizes in our community, working class uh, people who are suffering from it, the victims of it, are in a position to fight back. Yeah. I. That's, I was I was thinking about something you you with the theme in the book a lot of it revolves around black autonomy and there's a section a subsection entitled black autonomy is not separatist now I know that this question I think I may have an idea of what the answer would go but I want my audience to kind of get um these contextual perspectives because a lot of my audience may not even know um you've explained the context really well, but a lot of my audience probably never knew what SNCC was going into the interview. Yeah. They never knew much about the Black Panther Party, the Nation of Islam, any of these um, organizations. 
um, that we hear about in Black popular culture. But is there any overlap between Black nationalism and what you would propose, I guess, as a Black anarchist perspective? Is there any sort of commonality or is it just completely um, incongruent? That's a very good question. Very good. Well, let me just put it this way. Um, there is obviously um, some understanding um, from the, you know, what we call national liberation movements, what we, you know, and what we called, um, you know, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, all these, all these uh, manifestations in terms of movements and, you know, also organizations and, and figures like Malcolm X and all that. Certainly there is um, some um, ties and overlap there. There's no question about it. But it's a question of method, uh, you know, methods for, for, for how you struggle and what you struggle for, you know. Um, that's the difference. That's what I would love to see a Black anarchist tendency deal with and have an understanding about. Um, I cannot say that, um, you know, the, the anarchist movement uh, is, uh, in fact, uh, has ever been really aware of these things. I've been a solitary voice for a long time mm -hmm. <laughs> to explain these things to many people, not just, you know, not just the black people, but to, to other peoples as well. I've been a solitary voice to explain why things are happening and things they see, uh, black rebellions or, or, or you know, um, you know, movements come along, you know, various black movements come along. Um, yeah, there are people who see this, who understand it. Uh, the problem is, and the reason why a movement comes along, a new movement, is because the contradiction is not resolved. The contradiction, not that's why, you know, you had the civil rights movement come into existence. You know, there was, this, you know, there wasn't a southern movement before then, actually, that uh, was effective. And then, uh, after a certain stage in the civil rights movement, then like I said before, in 1960, the um, what became the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee first was a sit-in movement. Um, they came along and they transformed the entire civil rights movement. And they created a, a significant challenge to the uh, the civil rights movement, the, the older leadership and you know, the adults. Um, then, um, in that same year, the 1960, the Student uh, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came along, which is a, a very important organization in, in that it was a linchpin of one, you know, a, a radical civil rights uh, program uh, from, you know, from 60 to 65, something like that. Then uh, in 65, uh, Black Power came very much out of SNCC, at least the articulation of it, came out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, their leaders at that time became very uh, well-known, you know, H. Rap Brown and, uh, as he was known then, Stupid Carmichael, I'm using their old names. And um, <clears throat> they uh, became known. And later, you know, a little later, the Black Panther Party uh, came into existence. And it was, a, you know, just a really fledgling group in uh, 
at that time, fledgling group in uh, in 66 and 67. And uh, when I uh, got the newspaper was selling it, nobody had hardly even heard of it. They didn't know, you know, and most people thought that it was uh, a bunch of crazy people. Even my wife, who joined the Black Panther <laughs> Party, <laughs> thought that these people were crazy. They're all going to get killed. And uh, it, it, so they were raising, you know, uh, impossible demands and, you know, and, and, and putting things in people's minds to think about in terms of armed self-defense, that the police was uh, an enemy force, you know, an invasion force in our communities being forced upon us. They were not there to protect us. They were being forced upon us and uh, to oppress us, you know. And they were the first ones that really talked about that. And so I was selling the Black Panther newspaper and um, just by the act of selling the newspaper, I became a threat to the police and to the entire political establishment in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, um, you know, I, as I said, I was stopped and, and, you know, worked over sometime and take the paper from me and throw them in the, in the you know, in the trash or whatever. And uh, but it didn't discourage me. I just go back to get more, you know, look <laughs> around and, and, and give them away if I couldn't sell them. You know, some people were afraid to buy them. I didn't have the money for people, you know, back then, you know, uh, didn't have the money to buy it. So they would I just give it to them, you know, and uh, but I wanted them to have something to read. And even myself, when I first saw the paper and the stuff they were saying, I, I had to really think hard on this. You know, I didn't know anything about any pigs or. Uh, anything about uh, uh, fascists, you know, if I heard of fascists, I always thought it was, you know, Hitler or Mussolini or something, you know. And uh, so they were able to politically educate people through that newspaper, for sure, but also through grassroots organizing. They were revolutionary community grassroots organizers, what they were. And they were able to use that and other programs, other social programs like, you know, the well-known, um, you know, pre uh, breakfast for children program, but there are others: free shoes, free clothing. Um, oh, you know, of course, one of the bees was uh, the uh, free uh, medical care. You know, mm -hmm. so, I mean, there were a lot of programs, something like thirty-eight programs. You know, I, I don't think any one person knew, including the founders, knew uh, what what all the programs were and who all the people were, and both in the Black Panther Party as well as. Uh, all the volunteers, there were, there were probably as many volunteers, maybe more than there were uh, party members, to be quite honest. And um, so all this stuff um, was important because it show, uh, shows possibilities. You know, once you see a possibility, you can't unthink it. You know, you say, wow, they did this then, and so-and-so, they didn't have this, and they didn't have that, and they were still able to use it. They were able to do that. Well, then, and I'm not just pointing to them as the only organization, because in that period, there were all of these these organizations. There was a whole movement. The Black Power movement was was definitely an international youth uh, movement, protest movement, as well as a, a movement reconstructing society and, and rebuilding the community. They were doing a lot of stuff. There's so many groups that it's impossible to know all of them. And I've discovered some years later, you know, just by being in other cities, people talking to one guy was talking to me, talking about how he was in a group. And my wife has written a book and I told her to rewrite it so more people could read it on the Black Power Movement, where she's got all these interviews of, you know, all kinds of working class black people or 
who were activists and might have been leaders in their local area and, and you never heard of them and so forth, except unless you live there, you know. And uh, so, so that we can understand what kind of movement we need to build now. You know, we need to build a, a broad-based movement. You know, we don't need a uh, some movement around media superstars or, or something. Or that's what the government feeds us. Mm-hmm. They feed us Al Charlton and and they feed us Jesse Jackal and all these <laughs> other people like that. All these other people, you know. <laughs> they feed us all, those kind of people. Uh, and, I, and, and so on, you know. I'm very curious about your response to this. So when I'm reading the book, there's a section that talks about um, anarchists of color. And I talked with Jay Carrico. He, I think Jay's been on three times on the forum. And I asked Jay, what's this thing about black people versus people of color? To me, I'm still, I don't know how I feel about it because I'm still, I don't see it as the same per se. And I'm not implying that you see it as, as such. But I think language in this case could be somewhat problematic when you're talking about introducing this to like various audiences. But what do you mean by this black versus people of color? Because I know people use it all the time. And maybe that's because it's been co-opted by so many other groups. And so the meaning that they apply to it may not be the meaning that you um, see in it. What's the importance and the relevance of that people of color versus black? And and how do you see it as far as a plane of oppression? Well, you know, one of the realities is at, at whether society itself or whether it's in uh, political tendencies, not just anarchism, but there is um, a certain kind of um, anti-blackness. And, um, you know, I um, wrote, um, I didn't put it in this version of anarchism, the Black Revolution, but I'd written this article um, that talked about um, the progressive plantation and how black people uh, were treated, you know, when, you know, back in the, before and after, uh, contiguous with Garvey movement, let's say that around that mm-hmm. time, and you had the Communist Party, and you had all these white left groups that for years had created this mythology that black people couldn't do anything but organize a so-called race movement, that we couldn't build a, a movement for the reconstruction of society. Or to rebuild or, or to build a new society, we couldn't do that, and uh, so that was part of their mythology, their racist mythology. And uh, so when I wrote this article, it was to challenge that, but to also talk about how all this stuff functioned. And and so there had always been a certain amount of tension. I, we attempted to create my, myself and others who were in the in the, uh, the Black Autonomy um, Federation attempted to create a um, a parallel body of peoples of color and unite them with with our group. And uh, there were some white folks and there were some some other other folks in the among the peoples of color who uh, worked to sabotage that and they sabotaged it. And uh, and and ever since that time, there's been all this uh, uh, friction you know, not just between them and, and, and black folks, or some of them were, these were black folks, but 
and, and there's also a class thing. A lot of these people who are in the, uh, you know, uh, in this uh, POC thing is uh, they're middle class. They're well to do. Mm-hmm. And um, when Black Autonomy was pretty much street people, street, you know, street organizers and, and poor people and so forth and working class people. Uh, you know, you had some black folks come out of the, out of the college because we, we uh, recruited some people out of the Atlanta uh, University complex. But um, um, still, those people were grassroots folks. They weren't no, uh, you know, people who had uh, wealth or something or other. And um, that's one of the contradictions with leftism is that some of these people are from very uh, privileged circumstances, you know. And uh, so there's there's that contradiction of the class and of race and of race. There is an attempt. There's been this idea within anarchism, which I thought for years about everybody can create a, a tendency. Everybody can come along mm-hmm. through the tendency from wherever they are in the world, but not black people, and especially not black people in the United States. We're supposed to just blindly follow behind white radicals. And if we don't do that, we're, we're labeled as splitters and troublemakers and blah, 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 and all that. So I've had to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that's what my next book is about. I'm writing about that. And um, I temporarily called it uh, uh, Fear and Loathing of, of Black Anarchists <laughs> or mm-hmm. something like that. You know what I'm saying? Because that's what a, a lot of the content is about. You know, it's about the fact that when I came along and was trying to, uh, you know, even just introduce Black people into the anarchist movement, there was so much opposition, so much hostility, and so much fear and suspicion and that I had to deal with. And, um, you know, and, and time has went by, eventually I had to turn around and realize that I'm going to have to create something myself with Black people because they're not going to bring Black people in and make them do anything. And when they did bring in Black people, they some people, used, some of these groups used them to attack me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with all of this stuff going on, you know, it's important to say the truth. And that is a, a, a black tendency has to be an autonomous tendency. It can't be a question of uh, joining a white tendency uh, or, or working with a white tendency. Uh, it, we have to have a autonomous tendency uh, or autonomous movement because otherwise we'll be taking orders from others. We won't be able to decide what is in our best interest in the, in the interest of our communities. Uh, we won't be able to decide as what tactics and so forth we want to take that might be anathema to some white people or something. Else. We have to understand that it's extremely important that um, you know we do this. And also, that puts us in a position to dictate the outcome on the, with the anarchist movement as a whole. You know, We'll be able to be in a position to have a strong voice to combat a lot of the racist garbage that has gone on in in, in the move in the, in the anarchist movement, it's not a perfect situation, and I, I knew that going in. And but you know, I had some ideas and um, created some kind of bill to, to fight it. And I'm still fighting it to this day, you know. But um, and you know, even though people are listening to me more now than mm-hmm. they were then, uh, the reality is. To me, the contradictions of the past cannot be just glossed over. They have to be dealt with and understood and destroyed wholesale. Otherwise, they'll come back again. You know, and so um, 
yeah, there, there, there's going to be struggle against uh, with black between the black people and the so-called white white uh, movement uh, to transform a lot of the things that are there that are you know uh, you know ideologically uh, distasteful or, or counter-revolutionary or whatever. It has to be attacked. It has to be dealing with the. Uh, I, some people even call it decolonizing. Decolonizing anarchism—that's a, a discussion that's going on now, you know. But I'd recognized that a long time ago. I came when I got to a certain stage. I said, well, "You know, we're going to have to build something of our own." And once we built it, you know, of course, it was not a huge success, but it it did enough so that right now in 2023, people are still talking about it and trying to build something, trying to figure out how to build something now. So whatever we did back then. Uh, it may have seemed that it didn't have any impact at all, but in point of fact, it laid out, you know, it laid out a trail. And that's the whole thing with a, a movement. That's why we talk about the 60s and all that, because it laid out a trail. It showed the possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to do something that you don't think you can do it yourself and nobody else thinks you can do it. It's hard to do it. But if you see someone has done it and on whatever level they succeeded or didn't succeed, uh it inspires you then say, well, we can do this and we can take it to another level. And that's what I'm trying to do in this period right now in finishing up my life and finishing up my uh, organizing and training. You, you said a lot there and it's appropriate that this is called Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum because everything that you expressed up until this point sounds like anarchism encourages free thought more so than anything that I've been introduced to, like social, political, or anything um, to that sort. And I say that because I'm operating within, this is a social media space, but it's been brought to my attention that a lot of people, and I take it as a huge compliment, um, a lot of my viewers have said, Kiko, I see this more as a public service than anything. Like it's more than just a podcast. And that makes me feel good knowing that people see it as more than just and that's the point. It's supposed to be an educational forum. But to go to your point, I think if we spent even 10% of the amount of time that we spend talking about electoral politics and all this civility politics crap, there would be such a shift in mentality in people. But everyone is so stuck in their own electoral politics bubble. Even the people who say that they don't care about it, that's all it pretty much all their content is in line with that same superstructure. And yeah. you made a very good point about the white left and the black left. All these people identifying this way and that way. And I'm almost starting to think like, th- does this stuff even matter anymore? This um, identifying as being the left and, but not really upholding like what that means exactly. Because like you say, you come back to a battle of, the same superstructure. Like, how can you be um, a black leftist within this space, not an anarchist space, but a black left space within this two-party, one-party system philosophy? You're always going to be pushed to the margins because the superstructure is dominated by the white bourgeoisie class. So even though you may be a breath of fresh out of them, you're still going to be pushed in a corner. And you're creating something that's very different. Like this is a space where we can be ourselves and we can be the maximalist that we want to be 
And I think that's a very important point. I think <clears throat> I think that, um, like I said, if we think from the standpoint of not facilitating our oppression, not facilitating the system to continue to take advantage of us, to empower themselves, to enrich themselves and all this, while we continue to stay on the bottom, and if we ape what they do, if we do, uh, you know, try to turn around and so, you know, look at what they do, even the ones who claim to be subverting it, wind up upholding the same system of oppression. <clears throat> there are people I know who were in the 60s, were radicals and revolutionaries and all this, and they've gotten my age, or they've gotten paid off, and the money is good to them, and you know, whatever. And they um, they feel that there's only one thing they can do, and that is to find a way to profit from this, what's happening now. There's no way we're going to overthrow this. There's no way things are going to change so drastically that um, you're going to have a, you know, a revolutionary upsurge or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that really was the thinking that killed off the 2020 rebellion against police brutality in this country. It subverted it because people decided what they wanted to do was to put it in the hands of politicians to make the changes instead of allowing the people themselves to be organized and build the kind of uh, community power to fight back. You know, if you can't fight back, then all you're doing is taking orders. Mm -hmm. All you're doing is taking blows. And um, so I think that um, for me, uh, what I've been always saying, you know, now people may be saying it as well now, but what I'd always said was that uh, we needed to find a way to organize people, organize with people in, in communities, maybe your own community. Where you where you are, or whatever. But we need to talk about how do we build structures and 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 uh, organizing style that takes us away from accepting reality, the reality we're living under, and uh, building a new society. And that don't mean uh, just making reforms. I mean, sometimes reforms are important, but they're not enough. You know, they're just simply not enough. You have to. Uh, deal with um, the fact that there are people and there is a system. And now, you know, the, the most harmful thing that came about to refute the 60s was the erection of a mass prison system. And I'll give that as an example. A mass prison system, uh, you know, you've got now the shootings I told you about, 35,000 or more that we, you know, uh, in the United States of, of black people primarily, but other people's of color as well. And um, all of these things are refuting what happened in the 60s. They, they're all the things that people won and, and things that all the rights that people won and everything, new rights and everything. They're finding out that those things were tenuous and that these same rich white folks and the same uh, uh, wealthy benefactors that, that you know, promote somebody like Trump or some other fascist politician, and not just him, but there are others 
even even in the so-called Democratic Party that postures that it's they're different. Um, in point of fact, they are all they're doing is tightening a noose around our necks, and um, and telling us we have to accept it. We have to accept it, and we only have to accept it if we do accept it, and if we don't see any ability to create a different kind of change for ourselves. And the 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 value of the 1960s. There was a lot of mistakes made and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that people stood up, even people who'd been historically oppressed, stood up. And everything that happened in 1960, let's be clear about one thing. I don't care what somebody tells you. Everything that happened in the 1960s happened because of the Black movement, the Black mm -hmm. protests and social change and revolutionary movement. That's why it happened. And all these new movements that came into existence, the gay movement, the uh, radical feminism and all these other movements. It was in the wake of that struggle. And that was a struggle that was transforming society as a whole. Now, it could have transformed it to the degree that it could have eradicated capitalism and created a whole new social system. It didn't do it, but it made uh, a fundamental challenge to capitalism. These people had never, ever experienced that type of threat to their existence. You know, and so we should learn from that. We should learn the mistakes, of course, and we should learn um, why we got to build a certain kind of movement that power is in the hands of the people. They don't concede anything to the rich. Don't concede anything to somebody just because they're white and so forth. Don't concede anything to anybody that if it doesn't meet our interests, it's not in our interests. You know, not not in the hands of you know some bourgeois element. But the interest of poor and working people, if it's not in our interest, then we should build something else. We should go a different direction. And we have to be doing that. And we saw the potential there. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw the potential. We saw some things that were accomplished, but a lot of things weren't accomplished. And some of the things that were accomplished, since we weren't able to continue the struggle to the final extent, uh, were subverted. Things were subverted. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. uh, all of this. Um, is a lesson, uh, but it's also a, a road, a path that we can take. So I think that's important, and um, I have I've seen it. Uh, you know, they say the um, once you've seen the high road, and once you've seen the possibilities, you can uh, you can't unsee it. You know, you can't unsee it. There's people who were. Um, radicalized by it and you know some of those people gave up and went, to, went a different direction after the after the struggle was stifled or subverted it went a different direction but then some of us you know who i guess i'm a true believer a true believer that uh revolutionary social change is possible uh and that uh, we need to understand what our strengths and weaknesses are and we need to understand that we can actually transform and build. We can finish that struggle that started in the 1960s or whatever. And it didn't just start in the 1960s, farther back than that. But I'm just saying that that, that period is an important period for the black struggle, for black people to see um, that they could build uh, a, a movement, a varied movement, varied politics, varied uh, leaderships and all this kind of stuff. And, varied grassroots uh, organizations on the local level, a lot, all those things.
and that movement became an international movement. You know, it went all over the world, um, and um, you know, and, and had an impact. It, it had an impact on the uh, anti-colonial struggle that was still going on at that time. Uh, it had an impact on uh, <clears throat> in the um, countries like you know, like the United States, you know, ghettos and. Uh, but also in other countries, uh, the U United Kingdom, uh, France, and other places that had significant black populations, uh, not to mention in Africa itself. Uh, you know, you hear about Steve Biko. I don't know if you've heard of Steve Biko. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, the South African uh, revolutionary activist mm -hmm. and leader. Uh, he, was, he and his movement were influenced by black power were influenced by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, and uh, so these ideas, they germinate and they travel all over the world, you know. And and um, we got to understand how to link up with, our, especially with our peoples, uh, we got to be able to link up with them and and, uh, and build a broad-based movement. You know, they talk about Pan-Africanism. One thing, uh, you know, if you read the, the, the documents related to Pan-Africanism, and everything that came out, you know, it, it's always related to statism and and mm -hmm. aping what the white European countries did and, and all that kind of stuff. And it, it just to me, I was startled by how much it was not an original document. It was not a formative document that talked about some kind of black revolution or struggle or whatever. You know, it was, in fact, uh, just uh, trying to fit in with the existing power structure internationally. And uh, <clears throat> I think that we need to think deeper in this period because all these things that we thought were progressive or revolutionary or whatever in, from the past, almost all of them have been proven uh, to be wanting or to be uh, uh, something that will not meet our needs, something that will not carry us to the next level and, and uh, building a new society. And uh, so I think that's important. It really is. And uh, if you can't um, change the circumstances you live under, then you are like a zombie walking around half alive and half dead. You know? And um, we see black people uh, who have no hope, have no hope, have no path to freedom. Um, you know, live half lives and so forth, and we can. We we've always had the ability to do something about that. We've always had that ability. It's just that we don't accept that we can't. That we have. We 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 don't accept that we need to build something new. We continue mm -hmm. to think that we can just take what happened in the '60s and apply that right now. And so, well, we've got a different set of circumstances right now. We got the largest prison population in the world. And ain't nobody doing nothing about it. There has not been a mass movement around it. Uh, you know, the prisons have been the the primary way that the state has dealt with us since slavery was abolished. You know, prisons, and um, in one form or another, you know, whether it was uh, the convict lease system or or whatever changings or whatever, you know, they've always used the uh, prison system, penitentiaries, whatever, 
against us, you know. And even though we know that, we still continue to think that somehow we need prisons in this country, that somehow we need police, that somehow, you know, the government is going to help us, the government's going to save us. The same government that put us in position to be destroyed in the first place or to be oppressed, that government is supposed to be going to help us. And I think part of our, our thing has to be uh, educating, political education, or what I like to call popular education, radical popular education, to transform people's thinking, uh, as well as their circumstances, of course, but their thinking even, thinking about what's possible and what's not. Um, we do that, and we're 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 closer uh, than ever to actually breaking free. You know, we're closer than breaking. I don't accept this idea that some people have that we're going to create a, a a nation state on the territory of the United States while the United States exists. Yeah. And the reason that's not going to happen, and this makes no sense whatsoever. Any fool would know it. It's not possible. This government takes and oppress every country in the world. This government controls, this is an empire that controls every other country or tries to every other country in the world. And if a, if, if a black nation state came into existence, it would just be a puppet state of the white government that exists already. That's all it would be. Mm -hmm. The South Africans played that trick. And it didn't work. People kept fighting for real, real, uh, true liberation, but they had created some Bantu stands, they call them. And these were phony um, black uh, states that they created. They didn't have any real power. They gave them some, some sucker money, some, uh, you know, everything, but they didn't have any real power or any real economic vitality at all. But they used it to try to trick people, to subvert people, and create a new class of collaborators. That's where we are right now. We got a new, we got a class of collaborators came about after the 60s. And these people are holding us back. They're, they've got good jobs selling out the rest of us. And that's just one of the realities. And until we understand that, until we can understand that we need new ideas, that's the whole thing about me being an anarchist or joining with an anarchist movement. It's not so much that I accept what exists in the anarchist movement. You know, I have grave differences and have had for years with the anarchist movement, but a new movement is coming and that movement is going to bring new politics and deal with and deal with the black situation because it'll be from the black situation. You know, I, I was going to say, even the way you express yourself in the book and the language and even on this um, forum right now, when you're expressing yourself, it's very much, it's an open domain. It's, it's something that has potential. There's always potentiality. There's not a static structure. And I think when you were talking in the book about Marxism, Leninism, and all these other leftist ideologies, they seem to almost be stuck in a distant time and place. And that's been a major criticism I've had I honestly, and I bring people on the forum, you know, just um, it's informational and I don't pass judgment, but just trying to read that stuff, the dictatorship of the proletariat and all these different terminologies, 
when this country, over half the country has a sixth grade reading level, I think there's a level of almost impracticality about it. And the way your book is presented is easier to sort of digest, which a lot of people who would be detractors, they would just say, it, it comes across as very much like assertive and militant in a way. But the way your book is presented is like, it's very open to the individual to be like, okay, you could implement this in pretty much any time and space and it and it sort of curves the test of time as opposed mm -hmm. to a lot of these other ideologies that are kind of, we're referring to a certain person that had an ideology, but it almost seems like, does that even apply in this context that we're living in now? And I think that that's a very salient criticism that you make in the book, because I don't think we're thinking in those terms. We're always referring to something else that may have been revolutionary at the time. But what about now? We're talking about a, a completely different context. Yeah, we are talking about a different uh, uh, fragment of history uh, right now. I mean, there's no question. That's why I said the people who tried to reorganize the Black Panther Party, there have been 25 attempts to create a, a Black Panther Party. And all of them have, have failed because they didn't deal with the material circumstances and the historical uh, uh, slice of time that produced the Black Panther Party then at the same, in, the, in the first place. And, um, you know, we need to understand that we don't, in this period, in this at this time, we don't do community organizing. All these groups uh, around, they don't even do community organizing. A lot of people have never even stepped in the ghetto. <laughs> Stepped in the inner city whatsoever, unless they're going to work somewhere. Uh, they never even, even stepped in the communities to, to, to talk to people, to organize something. And so, therefore, you, you can't expect that that uh, we will be able to, you know, really implement any change if, if the people who are suffering from the system uh, don't have a voice and don't have the major voice in a, system, in a movement, then uh, you're going to continue to get these uh, self centered, conceited. Uh, radical propositions uh, written out uh, by somebody in college that, that never suffered a day in their life and uh, or, or or somebody in, in, in high public office that uh, you know that can can talk the talk but uh, never uh, you know do anything to really change the conditions of the people they represent you know you got all of this country these contradictions mm -hmm. and you know, things are getting worse and worse and worse. You got the prison system getting more and more harsh. You got poverty becoming more and more uh, deep. You got, uh, uh, you know, the police uh, becoming more and more of just a straight up death squad. And so you got the contradictions compounding each other so that there's going to be a, uh, you know, not like Malcolm X said, there's going to be a uh, reaction. There's going to be, a, a, it's like a, putting things in a test tube and shaking them up and there's going to be an explosion. And I think there's going to be an explosion, but I think the explosion has to be uh, something that people rethink their relationship to the government and understand that they can build something new. If they can build something new, uh, that they need to be organizing to do it. It ain't going to happen all at one time. It's going to have to be uh, progressive you know, over the course of time. And, um, you know, there's some things I did like about the Black Panther Party. But as you say, I criticized the Black Panther Party, too. And I criticized SNCC, for that matter. Uh, but they're products of the historical moment at that time. So I, I, we can say that whatever mistakes they made, 
were actually based on the material circumstances they were in, his material and historical circumstances they were in at that time, you know. Uh, but um, they did uh, you know, do some things that were, uh, well, you can say of last, lasting value, but uh, those things uh, were, in fact, um, uh, had the potential to transform the whole of society and, and, and build something new entirely, a, new, a whole new system here. We wouldn't be even having this discussion. It'd be another type of discussion, but it wouldn't be this. And um, so I, I think that uh, it's going to happen because people's, you know, people have a thing about fighting for life. And fighting for life, fight, fighting to live a better life, but fighting also just to stay alive. And, you know, and of course, what's, what's happening to people being shot and killed, people starving to death, people languishing away in prison for the rest of their lives, um, and 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 so on, and and then their communities being, uh, you know, underdeveloped, consciously underdeveloped, and we're living with American economic apartheid. You know, we're dealing with that. That's what we're living, living with, and so. Um, I think that organizers have to think practically and, and they have to understand how to relate to people, especially if the communities they're from. They, if they can't relate to the people and the communities they're from, who can they relate to? You know, uh, that's the difference between an activist and an organizer. Organizers are fighting to give power and to build power in the communities where they're from or, or that they've been exposed to. Activists will take an issue, one issue, a number of issues, and they'll, you know, fight around that one issue. And mm -hmm. to me, that's limited, and it just doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough, you know. Uh, one issue, whether it's, you know, whether it's just police terrorism, uh, which is related to the actual structure and the functioning of the state of the government. Uh, you know what I'm saying? They can't run this system without cops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The whole system would collapse if they didn't have cops. You got that right. <laughs> you know, people, people don't quite understand that. They think that the cops are trying to help them. Or the cops are going to keep the bad people away. The cops are the bad people. <laughs> That's the thing. They are the bad people. They are murderers. They are gangsters and stuff. You know, it's just a question of changing one's perspective and 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 being able to make people look at things differently. And then if, when they start looking at things differently, then we may be able to transform circumstances we're living under. We're forced to live under. Lorenzo, do you have time for two more questions And then before we conclude today? I'm here, brother. Okay, awesome. Okay, so I have two major questions because I think they're pretty significant um, parts of the book. One, you talk, there's one section you talk about tactics. And you mentioned a black tax boycott, a national rent strike, urban squatting, a boycott of American business, and um, a black and POC general strike. How effective would that be? And do we have the sort of capacity to do something like that in the near future? Like, what sort of time frame are we talking? Was this something that we could be doing right now? Like, how do you see that, those types of tactics? Well, I started talking about this stuff 20 years ago, you know what I'm saying, or more. So, I mean, uh, it, it, it clearly uh, is a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, that has never changed. That has never wavered. Now, 
the thing about organizing, um, you know, some things, uh, something that was um, a revolutionary thing, an idea, or a, a type of organizing back years ago, is not necessarily the same now. But then, on the other hand, there are ideas that were tried back 20, 25 years ago that failed, or that people didn't didn't grab hold to, that can be used in in another time frame in another crisis situation. Mm -hmm. And we may be in that situ situation. I contend we are. But we still are in, you know, like I talked about the mass uh, 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 mass imprisonment in this country. This is the largest prison establishment in the world. In fact, it's the largest prison establishment in world history. But where is the movement? Where's the movement? You know, what's happened is that it's been co-opted by intellectuals, academics, politicians, and others in the establishment, they'll feed each other. They'll write books about it, and they'll, they'll get on television, and so they'll complain about it. Um, but their solution is that the Democrats, or whoever it is they're appealing to, whichever wing of the ruling class, uh, should do something about this, should do something about it. I'm talking about it, and so forth and so on, but uh, y'all should do something about it. No, the people themselves, the, the communities, you know, one of the things I noticed, and I've said this over and over again, most so-called prison organizers and so-called abolitionists in this period, they don't do anything in the communities where the prisoners come from. They don't deal with the economic contradiction uh, where these communities are made poor, made impoverished. They don't deal with uh, the fact that, that, that police, so-called policing is a political tool to beat down the people with brute force and to uh, help those in power stay in power. And they don't deal with uh, the reality that it's the central government that's, that has created these conditions in the first place under the disguise of fighting crime. And fighting crime just leads us right on to fascism in one stage or another, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And we're at that stage right now where we, we're looking at realistic, straight-up uh, fascism, you know. we got we got the prison system already. Uh, concentration camps already here. You know, mm -hmm. we don't, it's not like Hitler had to be on concentration camps. Now, <laughs> we got concentration camps. And uh, we got killer cops as capable of genocide. We got all the ingredients necessary for uh, they could wipe us out. You know, now I don't like to talk like that necessarily because you know people think you you know hysterical or something other, you know you just alarmism but listen if somebody runs at you with a gun and tries to kill you and uh you see him coming and what are you going to do you're going to stand there and wait on him but you're going <laughs> you're going to hightail it out or, or or go down shooting or something you know but i'm saying we got to deal with that we got to deal with the situation um and of course I, that that's just a dire description but the issue is really dire i mean you know they they kill so many people uh that lets you know that they are serious a lot of these are, i call them police lynchings police lynchings that's what i call them mm -hmm. and uh they're not out there alone they're paid by those in power you know and we need to recognize that and um you know if you recognize that alone uh we could make people understand that alone uh, then we could begin to make people think 
of a different road, a different method uh, of dis disbanding the police. And people are starting to do that. Um, <clears throat> you know, even here in Chattanooga, uh, at a meeting the other night, somebody said that, you know, we, we can't keep making the same mistakes uh, of, of trying to um, reform the police or, or trying to work through the mayor or some other garbage. These people are all against us, you know, and that's a fundamental um, breakthrough for some people, you know, because they just think that somehow the people in power have their best interests or at least aren't going to wipe them out, you know, but they are in the process. You know, if we don't stop them, they're in the process of wiping us out. That's what it amounts to. So you have to have urgency and you have to have crisis. Now, people don't quite understand, even well, many organizers don't understand the role of crisis in organizing and building uh, a revolutionary movement. Uh, without crisis, people would just, many people just go right along with the system. They'll think, oh, everything's okay. But when there's a crisis situation or there's a threat to their lives or livelihood, then you can get action that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to get. And so I, I always try to tell that to, you know, young organizers or, you know, or, or people in movements and stuff so that they understand that, um, you know, when something is a crisis or things look bad about something, it's not always a bad thing for you in order to be able to build something new. In fact, it's a central condition, uh, an essential ingredient for organizers and, and for communities and those of us on the bottom to be able to rise and and uh, onward to freedom. Yeah. There, there's one final question that I think is, um, it, it, how could it not be relevant? Because you describe yourself in the book as a lot of different things, anti-imperialist, anti-racist, anti-libertarian um, socialist. You describe yourself as an anarchist, obviously, but you also describe yourself as a black revolutionary and so I get, I've gotten this question a couple of times. I've thought about it. I've posed it to a few people in the forum before. And everyone probably has a different version. But I want to know, since I'm talking to you now, what does Black liberation mean to you? I've asked myself that question. <laughs> so, well, you know, it, it actually is supposed to mean that uh, we, are, we are overthrowing or have overthrown every vestige of uh, racial oppression and every vestige of colonial oppression. And uh, we have restored ourselves to the, the state that uh, we are free people. Um, that's what it's supposed to mean. And uh, unfortunately, it's more complicated than that because, uh, as I said, many see it, see the struggle itself as for, you know, gains in terms of their uh, political position or their professional position, or uh, their um, you know money, you know, be able to make some money. Uh, sometimes directly from the um, predicament of, of black people, other black people, um, and and there are people who will tell you they're revolutionaries, but believe that you know think like that. So um, every idea about freedom about you know black liberation and black struggle is not the same um first you have to believe in liberation if you don't believe in liberation <laughs> just the fact that it's, it's a so-called black liberation doesn't mean anything uh, and you have to be able 
to point to and build a uh, movement in opposition to those in power and who are get their foot on our neck. And so many uh, have a vested interest to keep it the way it is now, you know, where they just ask, they just ask for some money and some political power over black over the mass of black people, so that they can, you know, act as a uh, black bourgeoisie or or comprador class and uh, you know petty bourgeoisie uh, elements. There's some people want that. You know, if you listen to some of the arguments, for instance about reparations. Many of these people want to create a black capitalist state or they want to um, enrich themselves in some fashion, you know. And some people even want to run the prison system. Some black people, so-called uh, black nationals, want to run the prison system or want other forms of ability to, you know, profit from the misery of, of black people under the system. And that's one of the things that we have to recognize as well. Uh, I don't support the Nation of Islam. Uh, I always have thought it was, a, uh, as Malcolm said, a criminal organization, uh, that it uh, a cult, a dangerous cult. They killed not only him, but killed others as well, if you look at their history. And uh, that don't stand for, you know, revolution or don't stand for uh, social change that want to work with those in power, but they want to, you know, build their movement at, at the expense of the rest of us. In Chattanooga, the uh, city government gave $1 million to the Nation of Islam, the local Nation of Islam. Uh, and uh, they gave them that money because they're, they're working with the um, um, police department. And, uh, the, you know, they soft cops, soft cops in a they, they, one of their um, programs is to get 10,000 black people to oppose crime in, in, in Chattanooga. So the idea of splitting the black community into certain elements allowed with them to you know, attack and wipe out the other elements or see to it that they go to jail or whatever the case may be. So they're helping those mm -hmm. in power stay in power. You know what I'm saying? And all the, the racial rhetoric and, and all the talk about the, the white devil and all this other garbage that you've heard for years. Um, <laughs> they're opposed to the white devil as long as what until the white devil comes with some money. If the white devil comes with some money, he's all right, you know. Mm -hmm. He'll take it. Uh, so I mean we got those kinds of things that are going on. Uh, they may seem discouraging, but they're typical of what happens when you're fighting for freedom. That happened in South Africa. You had certain uh, elements that uh, united with the uh, the enemy class, and uh, you know they were collaborators, and so you're going to have that, and you have got that now. And so there are those working with the police, and uh, they would love to have a situation where they could have us fighting each other, killing each other, you know, an internal civil war, and that's not far fetched at all. That's essentially what happened in South Africa, and in other countries as well, where people were fighting to overthrow the imperial power, uh, the colonial power, and uh, you had collaborators uh, who worked with those uh, white forces 
to oppress the rest of the people. And so we got that here in America. We need to be able to recognize it. Well, I'll tell you, Mr. Irvin, you actually, something that I was not going to do originally, but I think this conversation kind of inspired it because I, um, I work with black writers and I'm honestly right now, I'm not even in academia. I took a break. Um, I'm not in academia. I don't know, even know if I'm going to go into academia anymore, but my dissertation, the third chapter especially talks about the idea of quilombismo, the quilombos, the self-sustaining communities in Brazil. And so I think it's interesting that we're talking now because a lot of what is in your book kind of overlaps with what I was doing without even realizing it. And so I think because of you, I am going to, and because I've gotten this from the audience too, to um, Kika, why don't you post some of your stuff on here? I, I've always been reluctant to doing it, but maybe maybe there is more relevance to it than I realized before. And I thank you to kind of give, give me the impetus to kind of, you know, go forward with that because I wouldn't have thought about doing it probably before, but I appreciate that. Um, do you have any final words for my audience? Again, this is a very international audience. Um, we got different types of people in the audience, but um, do you have a final message or words for the people who um, should go read your book, Anarchism and the Black Revolution? Well, it you know, Anarchism and the Black Revolution started out as an underground um, uh, underground tome or whatever you, uh, pamphlet. It was 84 pages long. And um, and the fact that it's lasted this long, I guess as as well as myself, the fact it's lasted this long, and it still um, has uh, fresh ideas in it uh, that people can connect with, is an important thing, you know. But I I think that, you know, education without organization is empty, you know. It's it's just uh, uh, detached from the reality of what's happening in the streets. Uh, but I think education that attempts to or, or the, and that does uh, uh, transform the actual social conditions that people live under and encourage people to read and study, but also to be willing to go out in communities and talk to people and to try to build new movements and all that. That's really all that I'm saying, you know, all this really all that I um, uh, you know, put forth. And um, I think, you know, I'm not saying that every set of ideas are, are valid, but I am saying that, you know, those of us who are willing to open our minds and to look at uh, new ideas um, are important in this period where there are, like I said, there's a lack of hope and there's a, a dearth of intellectual uh, and, and, and radical uh, ideas being formulated. Uh, th these are the things that are killing the struggle. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I tell people all the time is that when the counterintelligence program came along, they, they did destroy the Black Panther Party and they destroyed SNCC and a, a lot of other organizations. And, uh, and that was, that was a, a terrible thing. But those organizations had been around long enough that they had... Uh, educated a large mass of people and it was not an easy task to destroy uh, the ideas that people had gotten like the Black Panther newspaper sold uh, 250,000, 300,000 copies a week um, and you know the Nation of Islam sold even more I'm not saying, you know, I won't say anything about that but 
nation of Islam solely war. So I'm saying ideas outlast individuals, ideas outlast uh, people and institutions and all of that. Uh, but ideas, new ideas have to be circulated among new generations and so forth. That's really a key thing. One of the things that have killed off the black struggle and kept it weak in this period is that the ideas that were brought about in that period in terms of political education, in terms of radical changes and all these things, those ideas were, have, is what we have to do in terms of well, some people call it political education. I call it popular education, radical education. We have to be able to, you know, it's not just your ideas you're expressing. Your ideas are always based on somebody else's stuff and, and so forth. So, and that's the way it should be. You know, like I, I, like I said, to me, uh, Martin Sastry was, was certainly a, um, uh, um, well, it wasn't just an elder, but, you know, he, he was a, a mentor uh, to me and others as well, you know. And, um, he was is very much responsible for some of the ideas I used to go into black autonomy and, and, and black, you know, black anarchism and all that. A lot of those things were inspired by him. I don't say they come from him, but they were inspired by him. And uh, so we need to think about what can we do? And, and, and if you're inspired or whatever, then you need to start thinking and writing and putting it out there. Otherwise, it's, it's just an idea. You know, you have to put it out there. You have to challenge yourself and then challenge other people who come up with garbage and keep us in slavery, mental slavery, you know, keep us in mental slavery as well as physical slavery, of course. <clears throat> we have to challenge these these people. We have to challenge the status quo, the idea that nothing can change. Nothing can change because, you know, uh, everybody thinks like this. Everybody does this. No, you break away and become something different and you influence other people. Like when I started doing this stuff uh, with, with anarchism, nobody paid any attention except, you know, the people in the anarchist movement to some degree. But uh, other people thought, I, you know, it was just so weird to see a black person saying he was an anarchist. And then uh, at my age was, you know, I was older than a lot of these these young white kids that, you know, had, they built a culture around Anarchism. I, I, my thing was, uh, I don't want to build a culture around anarchism. I'm trying to build a, a movement that can transform the conditions of life and not just my lifestyle or li my livelihood. No, I'm not trying to just transform them. I'm trying to change life, I'm trying to save life, you know, by building something new, a new whole new society. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, it's going to vary, you know, people have different ideas. And, and there's no one person, no one idea that can have everything encapsulated. Um, but, you know, you got to have sometimes somebody to to be a um, pole of attraction, <clears throat> pole of attraction, so that people will become interested, just like you become interested in what I wrote. I didn't know you, you didn't know me before. You knew things about me before I knew about you. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and I think we also got to stay in touch with each other and help to build institutions that raise the, the, the new ideas we're talking about, raise them and build a whole new political tendency, radical tendency, uh, build a, a, a whole different kind of political study and all of that. You know what I'm saying? And that's how things change. I mean, that's how you can get to the stage, at least, where you can build uh, revolutionary community organizers.
and, and, and for me, the first step is to try to build um, a black anarchist tendency, building that first. And then that then thing, a lot of things become possible as a result of that. So that I'm very happy I was on here with you. Um, like you, I was uh, kind of taken aback uh, at your personality and the kind of person you are. And, and so I had a different idea uh, and so forth. You know, and I, I had met Jay. I physically met him, but, you know, uh, we talked some years ago and everything. And, and, and then when I had heard about you, I said, Kiko, what, what Kiko? <laughs> who is Kiko? I didn't know what was going on. So uh, it, it's a surprise and a pleasant surprise for me to be in your presence and to hear your ideas as well. And, and your questions have been very, very uh, uh, right on, you know, and, and to the point. And, um, it, you know, you when you're doing interviews, you want to bring out the best in the person. You want to bring out the ideas and, and the, uh, the the views of that person that you, you might not get ordinarily if you don't ask a question or doesn't open the door for them to speak, you know. Um, I haven't had a lot of opportunities lately uh, to do this uh, speaking for years, so you know it was a wonderful thing. Well, brother, uh, I'm ready, you know I got to get out of here now. Yes, and I just I, had one I, more I'm thing. Honored to have been here. Honored to have been here, and we need to find a way to stay in touch with each other uh, because um, I'm always doing things, and uh, also I wanted to you know hook up uh, later on, and you know tell you about the book project and all the other stuff I'm doing. So I think it's just an important uh, meeting as a whole, you know, but I got to get out of here. <laughs> yes. Um, I just have one final thing. Is that if an audience member had a question or a comment, is there any way they, they could get in touch with you or you call yeah, them an email or anything? Yeah. I, I've got an email at K O M B O A uh, two at gmail.com. It's K O M B O A. That's small letters. Uh, K O M B O A two at T uh, number two at uh, gmail.com. And also, I have a, a Facebook page, uh, and, and they can go there and, and hook up. Gotta go. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, beautiful people. This was a wonderful episode 58, and yeah. I can't wait to publish it. And we'll talk soon. We'll keep in touch for sure. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah, that's what we need to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Love and struggle.